Well, thank you to Paul. He's uh, got up this morning. He could hardly stand up and uh, did a good job this morning. I told him it's a lot easier to fill in the preaching time because we've got about half a dozen people here who can preach. But when it comes to worship, it might get scary if, if I were to be doing something like that. Well, someone was asking me what was the reason for the current series that I'm doing. It's, it's a shorter series from 1 Timothy chapter 2. So if you want to follow in the first eight verses of that chapter, Paul's letter to Timothy, um, a young son in the faith, uh, why I chose to spend a few weeks and will continue after uh, today talking about this. But it was on a Friday that we had the Supreme Court decision. Of course, they make a lot of decisions. Some we like, some we don't. But the one that was uh, striking down the ban on gay marriage. And it seemed like as soon as that happened, just the Internet just lit up. Did you see that? I mean, just everyone was saying something. Everyone had an opinion. And I had a few people ask me, so, what do you think? And, you know, I, I, I wanted to respond, and then I thought, you know what, I'm going to give one more opinion. <laughs> I mean, is this one more guy going to have an opinion, and one more person on Facebook to say what their opinion is. I thought, what does God have to say about things like this? It's not just this, because we face so many challenges, whether it's politically, personally, emotionally, physically, that we go through that are kind of unsettling. They're unsettling for us. And so how do we respond to that? What do we say? What do we do? And I think when we go to God's Word, He, he gives us a settling and an instruction on, on how to respond. And, and I think the context, whenever you open up a book of the Bible, to, to properly interpret what it says and what it means, you have to understand context. And the context is this. Paul has been in Rome. He has been in prison. He's been released for a short period of time. He has helped Timothy with a pastor in a church in Ephesus. He'll return to prison and be put to death. That's the, the story of the Apostle Paul. At the present time, the emperor of the Roman Empire was a man by the name of Nero. So politically, it was tough. So you say, how does that compare to now? Well, we say, well, it's not, um, we have government leaders who are flawed. We can say, well, it's different today because look at our government. It's so bad. Well, I don't know if it was much worse than when Nero was, <laughs> was emperor. So I think that we, we take that what was happening then, what Paul was saying to Timothy, and how do we apply it to our lives today. And so here's Paul's challenge to Timothy. In chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, and I'm going to read just the first eight verses, he says, I urge then that first of all, petitions, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all people. 
This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. So if we were to sum up or boil down those eight verses to what Paul says Timothy to do. He says, pray. Yeah, but i got to say something. Pray. In the point of crisis in your life, you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do, you don't know how to respond. He says, pray. That's what you do. And he says, pray for all people. Does that mean Nero? Well, it's kings and all those in authority, yeah. All people. All people. And what are you praying for? That they would, they would quit doing that. You know, there are a lot of things that we can get people to quit doing. All those sinful acts. You know, you look around society and you say, if people quit murdering and quit uh, robbing people and, and, and uh, if, if we could stop this and stop that and stop that and stop that, it's not what he says. He says, I want you to pray for all men to be saved. That's what he's saying. I want you to pray for all men to be saved. Well, why don't we just pray that that the Supreme Court would vote right or get that right? Well, because if we did that, then there would be something else. When you look at the typical response, and in verse 8, he says, Therefore, it's kind of like the summation of this, I want that men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and disputing. I was reading one of the modern translations, and, and I love the way it says, instead of raising angry fists, raise open holy hands. Wow. Did you get that picture? Because when things that happen, we just want to go make right. I'm going to make this right. I'm going to, go, I'm, I'm going to march on Washington. You know, when I was a, in high school, I remember listening to the radio, and everyone, all the Christians were marching on everything. And, and the truth is, if, if, if you stop this and stop that and turn this law and turn that law, people still are dead in their sins and need Christ. Now, they may be more moral. They may not be committing certain things. But what is man's greatest need? Man's greatest need is Christ. And, and whether you, you commit these sins or these sins or these sins, or whether you're... One of those filthy, rotten, no-good sinners that everybody says, oh, they're just vile, vile, or you're a hypocrite in the church with your smug look and your self-righteousness, we've all sinned. (laughs) We've all sinned. You remember the story of the prodigal son? Remember that story? I was talking to a friend about that this week, and you know, it's quick to say, you know, the guy that spent his wealth and riotous living and ended up in the pig pen, and, and what a wicked sinner. And then he repents and comes back to his father, and then the older son says, well, where's my banquet? 
He says to his father, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I have, I have not asked for anything. I've, you know, and, and you know what? The whole point of the prodigal son is not the story. The point of the story is not the younger one. The point of the story is the older one. That's the point of the story. <laughs> because he's speaking to the Pharisees. Do you not see that the older son who kept all the rules and was self-righteous is just as much a sinner as his brother who's in the pig pen? We've all sinned. And the need of this world is for people to be saved. And I, I could say this, that whatever the issue, gay marriage, abortion, um, the list goes on, of, you, you name it, all those issues get resolved when people become Christians, when they're saved. Everything, maybe not immediately, but ultimately, every issue gets resolved in salvation. Now, so this is what he's talking about. What do we pray? We pray that all men be saved. What's the motivation for that? The why? Well, it says that God wants that. He says that God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved, he says the ransom by Christ is for all people. And we are to pray for all people. That's what he says. That's why. What we do is we pray. Why we do it is because the motivation comes from these compelling arguments. We'll talk later about how, in future weeks, on, on how we pray. Because I think there's a practical, functional way of how we pray. But what does it mean to be saved? If we're praying that Boulder Valley, it's not that we don't, stay politically active and we don't vote. I'm not saying that. It's not that we don't speak up on issues. I'm not saying that. But here's what Paul is saying to Timothy. When you see culture decaying, problems arising, things going on everywhere, what you do is you pray for all men to be saved. If I were to ask you a maybe quiz question, what does it mean to be saved? You say, well, ask Jesus in your heart. And you ask Jesus in your heart, uh, is it a ticket to heaven so you have eternal life, or is it an escape from hell? Well, I'm going to get saved because I don't want to go to hell, or I'm going to get saved because I want to go to heaven. But I would say this, that salvation is so much more. When God saves us, so much more than what you first think. So, so when we say, I am praying for you, you are praying for me, we are praying for people here, that we be saved. It is a tremendous, powerful statement. And this morning, I'd like to just point out three dimensions of this. What does it mean to be saved? Past, it's a past event, a present reality, and a future hope. And this is what he says, first of all, I urge you, in other words, I'm, Paul says to Timothy, I'm coming alongside of you and I'm exhorting you this to pray for all men to be saved. The past event, so ask the question, have you been saved? You've probably heard that before, have you been saved? Have you been born again? Have you become a Christian? How does a person become a Christian? It's not by works. Not by church attendance, not by baptism. It's 
not by living a good life. It's not by being moral. No. Becoming a Christian is when you recognize that God loves you, that you are a sinner, and there's nothing you can do to save yourself, and that God loved you so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins and shed His blood as an atonement to wash away your sins. And if you believe upon Him, He gives you eternal life. He makes you His child. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's simple. For a child, for an adult, humbly, you don't go up there and say, Lord, look at all the stuff I've done. All the, the, I got my checklist. God's not impressed with a checklist. He's not impressed with religious people. There are going to be a lot of religious people in hell. But God is impressed by what His Son has done for you in offering eternal life. When you realize, Lord, you know what? I'm a sinner. And who doesn't see that? <laughs> Which of us, who of us doesn't? I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I'm going to die. But Jesus Christ, in what He did in His death, burial, and resurrection, conquered sin and He conquered death to give to you eternal life. So that's how we become a Christian. But let me, I, I've wrote down, and I'm going to go through these quickly, okay? So you have to, I don't want to spend, i got 12 things God does when He saves you. <laughs> Okay, that most people say, well, he just came into my heart or I'm going to heaven. Number one, he knew you before he created the earth. Did you know that? Psalm 139 tells us that, that before God created this earth, he knew you. And to the extent he knew you, every cell of your body, every thought, every event, God knew you more than you know yourself, more than your spouse knows you, more than your mother knows you. God knows you from every, every aspect of all the time of your life. He knew you. Secondly, He loved you. He loved you. You say, well, what was there about me that He loved? He loved you. He chose to love you. And He loved you so much, He expressed that in the giving of His Son, sending His only Son to die. He knew you. He loved you. John chapter 3. Then he chose you. We use the word election. He, he actually, before he created the earth, chose you to be his own. So that's pretty incredible. And, and I'm, I may get a little technical here, but it's not just cognitive. It's causative. Cognitive meant may mean that, well, God's looking down there in, in time and saying, oh, Matt's way down there and, and, uh, and, and, and he's going to ask Jesus into his heart, so I'm going to go back here and I choose you now. No, it's not, it doesn't work that way. It's not like God just kind of waiting. God, before he founded the earth, chose me. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. And for you to realize and accept that fact that, that God's knowing you and loving you and particularly choosing you is just amazing. Number four, he drew you. He drew you in. It says in John 6 that, that except I draw them, they'll not come to me. So there's nothing in me that is, is going to move in a spiritual way because I, I'm, I'm, there's nothing, 
nothing about me that desires God or is going to pursue God. If you read in uh, Romans, the first three chapters, it talks about that there's, there's nothing in me that will seek after God because I, I'm just totally corrupt. But that the Lord not only knew me and loved me and chose me, He drew me in to Himself. Then He regenerated us, which means He gives us life. When something is completely dead, how does, it, how does life come? And we, this comes in regeneration, Titus chapter 2. He, he gives you life. He regenerates you. He justifies you. And that's a legal term. We read about in Romans 5. He, by the greatest judge, you talk about the uh, Supreme Court of Colorado and the Supreme Court of the United States. But in the highest court of all the universe, for all time, sits the righteous judge, Jesus Christ. And it says here, he declares you, he declares you righteous, just. Wow. And, and that is in, in the highest court of all. You have a legal standing of justification. Seventh. He converts you. In other words, He transforms you. Acts chapter 3. He adopts you. You know, for those of you that have been adopted, you know there's something special. The, the rest of us got into our family because we just, I mean, there wasn't a choice. You're just there. <laughs> not that that's not special. But when you get adopted, someone chose you. And in Galatians chapter 4, the Lord describes us that, that He has chosen us, adopted us, and made us a part of His family. He indwells you. John chapter 14, it says the moment that I believe upon Christ and I'm saved, that the Holy Spirit, God, takes up permanent residence in my life. Now, that's never happened before. In the Old Testament, kings and prophets would have the Holy Spirit and dwell them for particular acts of service. But now that, that when you become a Christian, even a, a young child or an adult that God's presence is in you and with you always, and He'll never leave you or forsake you. He sealed you. You know how you take a, uh, you fold something up in the old days, you, you fold it up, put a little wax on there, take the signet ring, and you seal. That's, that's the idea, the seal. And it's, it's a mark of authenticity. It's a mark of ownership. It secures the letter. <clears throat> So when you get that, you see that seal. And it says the Holy Spirit puts a seal on you, that you're God's. You belong to God. Uh, that's his mark on you. For, uh, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You got two more. He secured you. In John chapter 10, he said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They'll follow me. I give to them eternal life. They'll never perish. You say, well, once you become a Christian, can you lose your salvation? Well, I don't see how that's possible. Because if it was based on what Christ did, then it's not based upon what you did. He says, yeah, but I sinned really, really bad. I, I, I'm a Christian. I know I'm a Christian, but man, I just really fell and went way, way down. Well, it never was about you anyway. <laughs> you see that? This is the beauty of salvation. It's not, it's not that, well, I, you know, I, I was doing really well, and then I fell, and so now I lost my salvation. No, your whole salvation is based upon what, what Jesus Christ did for you. 
When my kids would disobey, and when they're growing up, uh, were they any less my kids when they disobeyed? No. It's the same with God. He secured you. John, and finally, John chapter 10. And then finally, He prepares for you. John 14, verses 1 through 3 says, let your, not, let your heart not be troubled. You believe in me, believe in God, believe also in me. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. So he's preparing for you. Now, all of that happens, listen, like that. Like that. That's who you become. Adopted, chosen, sealed, loved, drawn in, regenerated, justified, converted, adopted. That's who you are. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So I ask you, have you been saved? You don't do all of this. This is what God does for you. But you believe. That's all you do is, is, I believe. So have you been saved? That is when we look at the past event of salvation. But there's also a present reality of when we say saved, and that is being saved. So when a baby's born, all of the fingers and toes, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, it's all there. The nerves... But the baby grows, the baby develops. And, and so as a new believer, Peter says this, you desire the, the sincere, the, the milk of the word of God that you may grow. And so even though I'm a, I'm a brand new Christian, I have been saved. I am being saved in the sense that I am growing to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Romans 8 Verse 29 says, when, when God knew you before, He also predestined or planned for you to be molded, conformed into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. So there is a plan for every one of us from the day we become a Christian for God to shape us to more and more Christ-likeness. So we are being, in that sense, we are being saved. It is a saving work. So when I pray for Boulder Valley, what do I, I pray that they change the laws, you know, and be less concerned about the passage of marijuana or abortion laws or same-sex marriage laws. I'm not saying these things are not to be concerned about, but the greatest need for Boulder is people to know Jesus. And that's where my energy goes. Not the angry fist at all the laws. And, and, and what does the world think? When we're marching down the streets, shaking angry fists at sins, what did Brianna say impressed those people, those Muslims? Why'd they come to Christ? It was love, right? It was love. Say, so, well, someone needs to say something. Well, I tell you that, that when we began to pray for people to come to Christ and salvation, we begin to resolve everything. 
And then, well, what about the Christians? There are a lot of Christians out there doing bad things too. And you know what? Same prayer. They've been saved. They're being saved. Let's pray for when you see a fault in some other Christian's life, what's the best thing to do? Point it out. (laughs) Now, pray that God continues to shape them, develop them, cause them to mature, help them to grow, help them to see things. Help them to realize all that God is doing. <clears throat> I was walking the other night. We were up in Fort Collins because crew is having their uh, biennial training conference. About 9,000 people from all over the world come in. We're, so we're up there with our son, Ross, who's, who's with crew. And, and I, in front of me, there's Ross is walking, talking to Sarah. These are our two kids. And, uh, and then... Our son has our grandson, little Ross, on his shoulders. And I'm thinking, man, I just remember when I was hauling him on my back up by the, the flat tops going fishing. Dad, I'm tired. And uh, I remember hauling him up there, hauling him up on my back, hauling him up on my back. And now he's carrying a grandson. I think, just amazing how they grow up. But you know, when he was little, he got tired. I need to pick him up and carry him. And a lot of the things in his life weren't developed. They just weren't developed physically, spiritually, emotionally. They just weren't developed. But God was developing his life, developing our daughter's life. We'll do the same with our grandchildren. See this in the spiritual sense that God is growing you and developing you in your Christian walk to strengthen your faith. And this is how you pray for yourself, and this is how we pray for all men. I kind of jotted down, you know, what does it take to grow as a Christian? And so I put down three indispensable means of grace. Three indispensable means of grace. In other words, you cannot, you cannot grow without these. Number one, Holy Spirit. You have to have the Holy Spirit in you. In other words, be, have trusted Christ as your Savior The Holy Spirit is in you, and the Holy Spirit gives you insight to understand what this means. Otherwise, you're just reading words. The Holy Spirit convicts you. The Holy Spirit directs you and leads you. The Holy Spirit works in your life. The Holy Spirit does so many things, and I don't want to digress to that level, but but just the fact that you have the Holy Spirit is going to help you grow. Secondly is the Word of God. God's Word is like bread, it's like food, it's like water. We've talked about that in our study on Ezra. That, but you, you cannot grow apart from Scripture. The words of God help us to grow. And then third is prayer. Prayer is my, the Word is God speaking to me. Prayer is my just speaking to God. Not fancy prayers, but just Telling them how I feel, what I'm going through, what I need. I'm talking to God. It's a relationship. There are, there are other things that, that help us grow, like church, other believers. We're commanded to meet together to encourage each other. Uh, trials help us grow. I know you wanted me to mention that. <laughs> but those are the three indispensable means of grace. And... Can I tell you this, that you're not done, you're not done until we see the Lord come for us. 
growing. I used to think, you know, when I hit 40, man, I'll have it all down and I can just be on cruise control. Hate to disappoint you. But some of the greatest challenges you face uh, are after 40. And it's not the same for everyone else, but, but God brings it into your life. He's teaching you. He's growing you. He's developing you. He's shaping you more into the likeness of Christ. So that is the present reality. We have been saved. We are being saved. And then future, the future hope, we will be saved. So when, when Paul is telling Timothy, pray for all men to be saved, this is what he's meaning, the full scope of it. Not just that all men will bow their head and say, Jesus, come into my heart. No, that all men will experience the, the justification, being saved, that they will grow in their faith. This is how I pray. And then finally, that they will realize the hope that someday we'll stand in his presence. And, and it says that when he comes for us, we're in his presence, we will be like him. In other words, in a moment... We're out of a sin-cursed world. He says, I'll create a new heavens and a new earth where there's no sorrow, no pain, no sickness, no disease, no conflict. And I'll be with him forever. And that is just as sure as any other part of salvation. Now, why is it so important that we talk about this part of salvation? Because it puts everything into perspective. Everything is put... If you, if you don't understand the future salvation of your life, then you can get really wrapped up in the present ugliness of this world. But when you see every heartache, every disappointment, every disease, every loss in light of eternity, then you have hope and you look forward to that. Revelation 21 speaks about this. And it talks about heaven, the joy, the peace, the fullness, and, and say, well, it's forever. A lot of us, I used to get dizzy thinking about forever. You ever get, you know, thinking, when forever and ever, and I don't know if I like that, forever and forever and forever. But the reality is, in heaven, there's no time. You know, time is something we, this drives us. In heaven, it's just, there's, it's time, time will be no more. And everything will be in perfection and joy and happiness and fulfillment. And that's what we look forward to. Death and hell, Satan and all the demons will be cast into the lake of fire. God will remove all sickness and will experience the joy of his presence. And we know that that's coming. So no matter how difficult your present struggle is, that's the hope that you have. You know, back in 2008, we were living in Wisconsin, working at the college, and uh, during March Madness, we'd have a lot of the kids come over to watch the game, so we had an upstairs TV, downstairs TV, and we're huge Kansas fans when it comes to basketball, but I had Duke fans and Michigan fans and, I mean, all these other obnoxious people in my house, but, <clears throat> so we got, and, and just packed with college students, because they'd always say, can we come over to your house and watch a game? Oh, sure, come on over and watch a game. So Diane had gotten out of the popcorn and chips and the Coke and everything else. And we were playing Memphis State that year. And um, with two minutes to go, we're down by like about 12 points. And I'm just so upset because not only am I upset about this, that they're losing this national championship, 
But all these other people are just rubbing it in. So I'm, I'm not, I'll walk outside. I'm not, I'm not going to walk. Diane says, come back in. I'm, not, I'm, not wa- I'm walking outside. I can't, I can't take this game. And I was like, in a knot, this whole entire game. And I, you thought, it's just basketball. But March Madness, you had all the brackets. All the students were in the brackets. And I'm always talking about my team. And everybody's mocking me and everything else. So you got all this stuff going on. <clears throat> so I go outside, come back in. Go outside, come back. I can't, I can't believe this. They're down by, by 12 points or so, and, and, and a little over two minutes, they come back and they win the game. Now, I recorded it. <laughs> and so the next week, I invite everybody else to come over and watch it again. And, you know, I didn't have a lot of interest. But the difference the next time was we got... Still get the chips out and the Coke and, you know, all that and popcorn. And, hey, looking forward to tonight at the game. You know, I wasn't stressed the whole night. I wasn't worried about the game. I enjoyed every time out, uh, every commercial break. I was just chill. You know why? Because I knew how it ended. I knew how it ended. And no one can change that. That's why I say that for the Christian, we know how it ends. And just as sure as God has been true to saving us past, saving us constantly, His Word tells us He will come again for us, create a new heavens and a new earth. Everything will be made right. Everything will be just. Everything will be vindicated. Nothing will be left undone. It will be in His presence forever. And, and when I know that, it changes the way I live today. It changes the way I watch the game. I'm not stressed out. Now, you say, but we do get stressed out. Yeah, be, because we struggle to believe it, right? It's, that's called faith, and that's how we live. We live by faith. Will you believe that He saved you? He knew you all along. He loved you. He chose you. He drew you, he justified you, he adopted you, he regenerated you, saint, he, all these things. And now he's working constantly in your life to mold you to the likeness of Christ, and he will come again for you. When I see that, then it changes my perspective on life. And, and it motivates me to pray for all men How do I pray for all men? Do I pray for Nero? Yes. Do I pray for our President Obama? Yes, I do. All people in authority. All men. And I pray for the greatest need they have, and that is that they be saved. That's what I pray for. Because think about this. If I could say to you, you know what? We're going to get the whole abortion thing turned around. You know where it's, it's illegal in America to have an abortion. We are going to reverse the Supreme Court's decision on striking down same-sex marriage. We are going to strike down their decision of taking prayer out of the public schools. And the list could go on and on. Let's say we got ten things done like that. Shaking our fists, getting it done, marching on Washington. 
and the world's still going to hell. And people still need Christ. But when a person comes to salvation, God resolves everything. Maybe not immediately, but ultimately, ultimately, He resolves everything. So vote, speak up, but realize the greatest work the church has to do is to pray that all men be saved. And to live that way and to work that way. And I pray that this church becomes like that. That is our passion. That people could be able to come to know Him, what, he's, what He did, what He's doing, and what He will do to save us. Let's bow together as we pray.